morning, and thanks for joining us on this uh, Memorial Memorial Weekend. I uh, thought we'd uh, just start it off by seeing who we have in our midst. Uh, most of you know what Memorial Weekend is all about, and so um, we'll see how many in our midst here are going to watch the Indy 500. You can raise your hand. No, just joking. Okay. <laughs> There's a few out there. Okay, good. Well, obviously it's... Uh, you know, all about Memorial Day, which is tomorrow, and uh, just a time where uh, we set apart time to celebrate um, our, you know, celebrate those who serve our country. And so, um, are there any in the room here? I just ask that you'd stand up if you have been a part of the military, served our country in that capacity. All would you stand up? Appreciate you guys' service there. Um, how many of you know folks that are still currently serving in the military, or relatives, friends, family? Got a few there, so we have a number that, you know, I just think it's good to continue to pray for for our, our troops, pray for their safety, pray for just you know God's will in related uh, you know related to them, the military altogether. But um, in some ways, it ties in well to uh, what we're going to look at today in Mark chapter 15. You know, um, talk uh, talk about serving our country, but then. We're going to look at Jesus' example of sacrifice and how he served really all of mankind, you know. And, and so we're going to pray and we're going to look at Mark chapter 15 here. So once you guys, let's just bow our heads and we'll, we'll pray. Well, Lord Jesus, we do just thank you again for this morning. Thank you for giving us life, uh, not only life today, but uh, eternal life. And, and that you've made that available to us by, by the cross and by what we're going to look at today. And so... Um, Lord, I just pray you'd help each one of us to have a soft heart, a sensitive heart, where we can hear your voice today, that we could hear from your spirit, that we could hear from your word. And I ask that you would um, prod us and nudge us and do whatever you need to do to, to get us to respond in the way you want us to respond here this morning. And I pray you'd help each one of us to learn from your example of taking on the cross. I pray that this church would be full of disciples of yours who deny themselves and take up their cross to follow you. Um, and we just ask for your grace for all of this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we're, um, we're just going to jump right in here to Mark chapter 15. And the way we're going to do it is probably just going to read a few verses and look at a few points as we go. If you have one of the house Bibles here, it's page 1009. 1009, and we'll look at Mark chapter 15. We're probably not going to get through the whole chapter here, um, but we're just going to try to draw out a number of points here and really uh, my hope is to look at one of the themes is just looking for lessons lessons of the cross things we can learn from Jesus and the cross that he carried uh, things that are an example to us here but or just things we can learn related to that so anyways we'll just start off here with the first couple verses and just to help set the context a little bit um, Mark 15 1 and 2 here um, very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus and led him away and handed him over to Pilate. And so that's, we're just going to start off right there here. The context, you know, Jesus, um, you know, last week Tim talked about uh, the example of, of Mary and how she broke this expensive bottle of perfume in the act of worship of Jesus. 
there was a lot of other things that happened in that chapter too, but it was a really long chapter there. But, um, you know, they, they arrested Jesus and they brought him to trial with um, the Jewish leaders. And then um, there was a section where Peter disowned them and things like that. But, so here we are, and it's saying that the chief priests, the elders, the teachers of the law, the whole Sanhedrin, they reached a decision. Really, they reached the decision of what they found Jesus guilty of. And uh, what did they find Jesus guilty of? Ah, no. Um, you, some of you that heard the answer in the first service, I'm, we're going to keep an eye on you. You can't win any prizes here this morning, so uh, you're disqualified. Um, but yes, I heard it back there. Was it blasphemy? Yeah, the Jews found Jesus guilty of blasphemy. You can rewind to chapter 14 here. And uh, like back in verse 61, uh, it says, And the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ? The Son of the Blessed One. I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. So in the the Jewish uh, trial there, if you will, they, they found Jesus guilty of blasphemy. And then it says, uh, you know, they reached this decision. They bound Jesus and led him away and handed him over to Pilate. And what, uh, so in the Jewish world, he was in their eyes guilty of blasphemy. In the Roman world, what charges did they bring against Jesus there? Some of you that heard the answer, don't you give it away? I'm watching you, Alan. I'm watching you. Well, you know, the next verse kind of gives us a hint here. Um, yeah, just along the lines of rebellion, but like verse 2 just says, uh, Pilate, this is his first question to Jesus as far as uh, Mark's account goes, and it just says, are, are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. Yes, it is, as you say, Jesus replied. And so in the Jewish world, he was found guilty in their eyes of blasphemy, but when it came to the, the Roman side of the equation, they, um, they couldn't accuse him of blasphemy. You know, if you brought charges against someone in the, the Roman Empire of blasphemy, you know what they would do to you? They would probably just laugh, or they'd add you to a long list of gods that could be worshipped in the Roman Empire, or something along that line. They didn't really care. So you couldn't bring it to that angle. But the angle that they spun it on was, this guy here claims to be the king of the Jews. And we know that Caesar has no, there's no other king in Caesar's world but him. And so therefore this guy is guilty of treason. Really it was treason, the account, uh, the accusation that they brought him, they brought against him there. And so that's why his first question is, so are you really the king? And, and Jesus answered in one way it's pretty straightforward. He just says, yeah. Uh, another way he, he kind of makes it a little mysterious and says, it is as you say. You know, it's kind of like this, uh, he answers it, but it wasn't like, if he just straight up said yes, I think Pilate would have gone, oh, you're a king, are you? Well, we can't have that because the king I work for doesn't want other kings in his empire here, so we'll kill you for treason. But, but Jesus kind of did a little of both. You know, he answered it and he, he left a little uh, mystery in there. Um, and so we'll just keep on reading here. Uh, verse 3, the chief priest accused him of many things. So Pilate, so again, Pilate asked him, are you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now, it was the custom at the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison uh, with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you, want, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate. 
knowing it was out of envy that the chief priest handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why, what crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them and had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. So we're going to look at this section here just um, for a bit here. I think uh, one of the first lessons we have on the, on the, from the cross here is, oops, what button am I supposed to push? Do we, uh, it's not that one. Number two, number, oh, there we go. Thank you. You can push them for me. The arrows. Arrows, arrows are good. Okay, there we go. Arrows. All right. So, um, you know, the, this verse here is one that uh, I'd like to draw out a few things from. The verse 15, it just says, Pilate. You know, Pilate is trying to, if you read the other gospel accounts, Pilate seems to be oscillating back and forth. On one hand, he really thinks, you know, he doesn't want to, um, he doesn't want to cause trouble related to Jesus. His wife had this dream where he said, you know, this guy's innocent, don't mess with him. And on the other hand, he's got this crowd that's starting to rally, uh, a mob, potential for a riot. And in the whole, you know, Roman doing your job right and your territory, riots are not a good thing. You know, that's not good for your job security. So Pilate's torn between there's this cool, this good dude Jesus that doesn't seem like he's done anything wrong. There's this mob that if you don't, you know, please them, they're going to probably get out of hand and cause you trouble, you know. And so, uh, but in the end, what choice does Pilate make? Who does he go with? Jesus or the crowd? Well, he went with the crowd there, you know. I think that's a that's one of the things we have to watch out for. Wanting to satisfy the crowd sometimes will lead to um, condemning or turning your back on Jesus. Satisfying the crowd at, at Jesus' expense is what Pilate did. And, you know, we have to watch for that in our own worlds. Um, uh, I don't know what, what your situation is currently, but I think sometimes we face a crowd that would sway us away from Christ in, in a lot of different environments. You know, I remember back into the high school days where we had, you know, the the um, ever-popular peer pressure, you know, and it's like uh, sometimes your peers wanted us to do things that we maybe didn't think were good things to do, you know, and they could sway, the crowd could sway us. That was the crowd. And often they would sway us in the direction away from, maybe not necessarily what Jesus wanted, but maybe, um, but often away from what our parents wanted, you know, and there was a, a swaying there. I know um, in my life when I, was, when I was searching this out about becoming a Christian, I knew there was a crowd there that I uh, had a crowd of partier buddies that, of mine that we um, had gotten jobs together. We were all kind of these bachelors with uh, good salaries that could, you know, spend it, wasted at the bars and things like that. And so, yet at the same time, inside me, I had this sense of this whole Jesus thing, it seems like it is what I need and I really do need to invite him into my life. But then I knew this crowd would probably, my roommates and some of my coworkers would probably laugh at me because this, this guy, oh man, you needed a crush, you needed a Jesus, huh? You're going to be a Jesus freak and all that. And, and at the same time, I knew the results of that choice. You know, one day when I came before God, if I go, oh, you know, at least my roommates were happy. I'm glad I chose this, you know. You know, I knew that it would be better to please God than it would to please them. And I made a choice to invite Christ into my life as, as Lord and Savior. Um, but the crowd was probably not leaning that way as far as it goes, but... I wonder about your world. I just encourage you to look through. Is there a crowd you're trying to please that would lead you in a different direction than following Jesus? 
Sometimes in the workplace, in the office, there's a, you know, there's certain life that goes on in that workplace that, you know, some people might be surprised to go, you, if you're at church and you acted like you did in your office, some people might go, whoa, I, I never, I've never seen you like that. Um, but there's a temptation to please those in one environment and please those in a different environment. And you've got to decide, um, are you trying to please Christ or not? You know, um, I, I remember back when uh, I was trying to search out whether I should leave my job to go full-time in the ministry. And I just thought of those around me and the people at work. And I just felt like I just didn't want to let them down. My boss had just given me a, a raise. I had a great evaluation. And I just thought, this is good. I work with some Christians. And yet at the same time, I knew... I just had this sense, this is the calling God had on my life, to leave that, to go into ministry. And eventually when I sat down with one of my bosses and told him, you know, here's what I'm praying about. He, he said, I was, you know, I was glad he's pretty straightforward with me, but he was also a believer. And he just said, you know what, if God's calling you into this, I'm not going to get in its way. You, you ought to go do that and don't worry about us, you know. And, um, and I did go that way. Though there were some, I remember another good intended Christian buddy sat me down at lunch and said, you're crazy. You're throwing away your salary. You're going to go ask people to give you monthly gifts to have this little money to live on. Uh, are you sure that's going to glorify God the most? And, you know, I, I sensed that it was. You know, he invited me to lunch last day of work, and I thought, I thought he was going to be my first ministry supporter. And the next thing I know, he's, like, trying to talk me out of it. And I was like, oh, no, I've got to find a new supporter here. So um, it, was, it was the beginning of a, quite a journey of raising support there. But, but anyways, you know, we have to watch out. Who's, who's the crowd you're trying to please? And is it one that will help you in following Jesus? Uh, or would you make a choice that would be at his expense? Now, the other thing, before we transition to the next few points, a number of them are, are quicker points here, but when you see this here, it says, you know, um, wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He flogged Jesus, handed him over to be crucified. Now, how many of you have seen the movie The Passion of the Christ? Most of you? If you haven't, shame on you. you know, no, just joking. Um, we don't get any commission for that movie around here, but it is a good movie uh, just to portray Mark chapter 15 and other things. But it's also somewhat somewhat gruesome. You know, it's somewhat uh, what they depict in there I think is about as close as to reality as I've seen in any movie. And I imagine the reality was much worse, much more grotesque than what we see there. And it was a thing that really happened. But, but anyways, when, when you see Barabbas portrayed in this movie, he's kind of like this crook. That, you know, he just, anyone remember him? He's just kind of like this ugly looking and all he does is grunt and growl and you know he gets out there in the crowd and he's like I got released you know and I don't know if that's an accurate portrayal of him or not maybe it was he was a convicted murderer I mean maybe he wasn't a good guy but the question I have for each one of you to think about is um, what sort of feelings do you have about the fact that Barabbas was released he was supposed to die they set him free and and Jesus is going to die how do you feel about that how do you feel about Barabbas? How many think that? Yeah, that makes sense. That's real fitting. Any of you? Me personally, I've had bad feelings about Barabbas. You know, I'm like, no, oh, what's the deal? And he's supposed to die. In the movie, I go, yeah, that's exactly. He was probably a punk, and he, you know, he's getting off the hook. And and I think in some ways, though, your perspective of Barabbas might relate a little bit to your perspective on the grace of God. Because the reality, you know, Barabbas is a lot more like me and a lot more like you than we realize. Uh, you and I are both men and women that are under death sentences in God's eyes. We, we have sinned against, we've violated a, a righteous, a holy and an eternal God. And we've earned death sentences too. 
And so if you have a little bit of like, I can't believe they let him off the hook, you ought to think a little bit about your own life. Sometimes we, we love to lavish ourselves in God's grace, and, and we don't like to pass it on to people, sinners like Barabbas, you know. But, but I wonder if, if we ought to do some more looking at, at the grace that God has shown us and how to pass that on to others. But there's some, some other points here. I, I feel like it's one of the things God has been teaching me through even this chapter here, just reminding me of how gracious He really is to a sinner like me, um, that I could walk free at his expense, you know, and it's a pretty profound thing, but look at some of the other lessons here, um, we'll keep reading, we have a couple of those up there, satisfied in him, there we go, look at this next one here, um, so let's read, uh, where do we leave off here, so let's start about verse 16, Mark 15:16. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. They began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Uh, Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. Uh, when they had mocked him and took off the purple robe and put his own clothes and, and put on his put his own clothes on him, they led him out to crucify him. So this is uh, another scene here that's just kind of. I was trying to figure out how do you put the most positive spin. Maybe this is a good place for a joke here. You know, I I don't have a good crucifixion joke. You know, it's probably a little uh, oxymoron. But um, anyways, it's just. Can you imagine this scene? You know the. Can you imagine enduring this scene that someone was doing this to you? They were mocking you. They were spitting you. They were putting this crown of thorns on your head. You know, I was telling people, uh, thorns, I, I don't know what your experience is with thorns, but um, I'm from New Mexico, you know, and in New Mexico, the state flower is the thorn bush, you know, and so, um, no, it's not. It's actually the yucca bush, the yucca plant, which is also pokey. Don't want to mess with those things either. Um, but anyway, thorns are not fun to mess with. And, and to make a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and then they started striking him. You know, it says with a staff. I really think, you know, think of a cane or a rod, uh, some sort of solid rod or one of those hollow bamboo things. It's hollow, but it's really tough. Imagine getting struck in the head over and over again while these thorns are, are ripping out your, your skin, your scalp, your, you know. And then on top of that, they started spitting on him, you know. That's, uh, I don't know about you, but I think spit is gross. You know, it's just kind of disgusting. And, and yet they were mocking him. He's bleeding. He's got these probably open wounds. And they're going, you know, and they're just spitting on him. And, you know, I kind of go, try not to spray you guys. Um, I sometimes accidentally spit. It's no, no, no hard feelings. I notice the front row is skidded really far back here. That's probably a safe decision. But, um, you know, spitting is just, it's just, it's just kind of gross, you know. Can you imagine someone that you uh, maybe didn't like, someone that doesn't like you, someone that you're just like uh, despise or something, and imagine them spitting in your face, uh, maybe when you have a wound like that. It's just, this is what Jesus was going through. And it was kind of, um, you know, I, I guess a couple of the questions we're going to answer here, a couple uh, the next points just re- relate to this one question here. Why, why was Jesus treated this way? Why was he mocked? and struck, and scourged, and whipped, and spit on, and, um, you know, insulted. And there's a, a couple answers to that, but each one of them, I think, are some lessons for us to, to learn, to catch here. Um, let's see if I can do the next one here. 
This from the cross was all part of God's plan to rescue us. Did you know that? Did you know that for these things that happened to Jesus, being spit on, being insulted, being mocked, it wasn't like they just randomly, okay, let's, let's get some mean people together and they're going to do a few random things. These things were even specifically told about. You know, Jesus himself told his disciples um, way back in, in chapter 10. Here we can look at what he said to them, 10 and 33 and 34. Here's what Jesus told his, his disciples. He said, We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. And Jesus told him some very specific things that were going to happen. How did he know that? Well, you know, I think everything that he mentions there, in some ways, is kind of an outline for Mark chapter 15. They, first, the, the Jews found him guilty, and then they handed him over to Pilate, and then, uh, you know, under the, the Romans there, they, they mocked him, they spit on him, they did all these things. But, you know, almost each one of those, uh, you can reference back to Old Testament, things that God said, hey, by the way, this is what's going to happen to the Messiah. They will spit on him. They will insult him. They will mock him. They will whip him. Um, and, and each one of those is really referenced back to God's plan. You can find verses on all of those there. Um, let's see, you know, one of the verses that used to kind of, I mean, when I first bumped into this verse in Isaiah 53, um, 53.10 says this. It's describing all these atrocities that are, you know, these things that happened to Jesus. And it, verse 10 says, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. You know one of the reasons why he got spit on? is because that was a part of the plan. That's one of the reasons why he got mocked, why he got beaten, because it was a part of God's plan from the beginning that he would go through all of that. Um, and that plan was so that we wouldn't have to go through all that. You know, Jesus got treated in the way sinners like you and I should have been treated, and that was because God had to punish sin and he had a plan for punishing it from the beginning so that he wouldn't have to punish us in the, in the way that we deserved, you know. And so, but it was, it was all part of a plan. I've been thinking about a verse here. There's one in Isaiah uh, 43, 12, and it's, um, it's this passage where Jesus, or, or God is just talking about how there's no other God like him. He tells you things that are going to happen and then they're fulfilled and then you have people that can witness it. You know, no one else, sometimes people think uh, other religions dabble in prophecy. You know, they said, oh, well, in the Hindu Sanskrit, this is supposed to happen. And this is... They, don't, they don't even come near it. They don't, no other religion uses prophecy like the Bible. Hundreds of years in advance, in great detail, God says, here's some things that are going to happen. And he foretold that through the prophets. And then he has it happen with Jesus. And he has these witnesses that record it for us. And then he says, go on and proclaim the good news about this. But other people, they don't dabble in it. If someone tells you, oh yeah, well, uh, Buddhism has prophecies too. You know, they don't. They really don't. Nothing is done in advance. Nothing that's done in great detail. You know, sometimes people say, well, Islam has prophecies. Well, no, it doesn't. You know, Islam, when Muhammad hit the scenes, Muhammad is the one that recorded, you know, um, the Quran. And if Muhammad recorded the Quran, really, he couldn't have found anything that preceded him recording the Quran. You know, they don't use it. If they do anything, they say, well, the Bible says this, and it points to this. But anyways, here's the verse that I've been chewing on. I'll pass it on to you. Um, Isaiah 43:11 and 12 just says, I, even I, am the Lord. Apart from me, there is no Savior. I have revealed 
and saved and proclaimed, I, and not some foreign God among you, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am that God. But I just think how God has had this plan through the prophets He revealed. By the way, there's a Savior coming for this mess here, and here's some things to look for. Over 300 prophecies related to the Christ. And then He saved. The Christ showed up, and He took the cross, which was the way that we would be saved. And he had the, the apostles there to witness it. And the apostles were there going, here's what we're seeing, here's what's going on. And then they had these things where the Holy Spirit helped them go. And that, as a matter of fact, that has fulfilled that prophecy and that prophecy and that prophecy. And we're seeing this before our very eyes. And I'm going to write it down so I can pass it on to you. And we are to proclaim it. You know, it says, I, I've revealed, I've saved and proclaimed it. And you are my witnesses. You know, is what he later tells the disciples in Acts 1 there. But just some, some framework to think about how God foretold these things. How the apostles witnessed, the, you know, Jesus bringing about our salvation and how disciples are commissioned to proclaim it. Um, anyways, we'll keep trucking here. Sorry, but it's all part of God's plan. That's the point. Next thing here, um, you know, this um, on the cross, Jesus became sin. You know, that was a part of the plan as well. This whole mockery, the spitting, the shameful treatment, the, um, you know, there's probably just embarrassment and things related to that, but. Something profound happened on the cross. This verse here, some of you might know this from 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, but it just says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We will pray for our things here later here. All right. That's our 12 o'clock prayer. I hope you guys are still doing that. We're going to have to uh, figure out how to work that into the service here. Um, but anyways... So, um, I, one question to think about is, how many of you have ever done something shameful in your life? Something that, if it were put on the big screen here in front of the church, that you would feel embarrassed by, you'd feel guilty, you'd feel condemnation. How many of you have ever done anything like that? I know I have, more than I'd like to admit. Um, you know, and, and Jesus was treated, you know, when we sin, whatever shameful thing you did, you know, Jesus was insulted because of what you did, what I did. Jesus was, you know, there's things that I've done that I probably should have been spit on. I probably should have been beaten. I probably should have felt this, this sense of shame. And all of those things, uh, you know, they would, have, they would have been fitting for me in my sin and probably then some. But, you know, Jesus never did anything like that. Jesus didn't do that. He didn't do anything worthy of shame or mockery or, you know, physical pain or any of that suffering. But he did that, he did that so you and I wouldn't have to. You know, I think of how Romans 8, 1 just says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, if you really, if you've looked to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, all that shame, that guilt, that condemnation that you and I deserve, if Jesus is your Savior... He dealt with it. He took the shame that you deserve, uh, and he he became that sin. You know, and that's a, just a profound thing to think about as well. He became sin, and then the next point here is that, um, you know, not only did he become sin, and he represented all all the sin of the world, but but then he was punished as sin. You know. He never did anything wrong, never had any impure thoughts, impure motives, anything. And yet he became sin, everything sinful, whether it was rape or lust or murder or all of that. Jesus took that on himself and, and his father punished him for that. The wrath of God was expressed on Jesus for my sin and for yours. And, you know, we, 
We need to think on some of these things and let them saturate our, our heart and our soul. Sometimes we can get flippant with sin. You know, oh yeah, it's paid for, it's a done deal. Um, you know, God is never flippant with sin. God thinks sin is a big deal so much so that He punished it severely in His Son. And we ought to not hold His cross, the cross of Christ, you know, flippantly like that. Um, what else do we have here? Next one. Now, why did Jesus, again, why did He do this? Uh, there's another point here. I think it's a number five, I think it is. You know, uh, Jesus did that. He endured the shame. He, he was punished for the sin. He, was, he agreed to be a part of this plan, all because of His love. His love, um, his love has two parts here. We're going to look at the first part was just, He did this because of His love for His Father. You know, sometimes we can sing these worship songs that are all about His love for us. And I think that's good. I do think we have to be careful about, uh, you know, when you read the Bible, when you read all the worship that happens in the book of Revelation, no one in Revelation is singing about themselves and how much God loves them. You know, they're all singing about God and how amazing and holy and awesome He is. Sometimes I think in this generation we can, we can make things more about me. And yet, on the other hand, we don't want to miss the fact that God really does love me and He loves you. And He did this because He wants a relationship with me and with you. Um, but one of the reasons why He did it is, is because... He wanted to show love to his father. Somehow, you know, when they were coming up with a plan to rescue fallen man, sinful man, uh, it ended up being that Jesus' role would be to come into this broken world and to endure this cross, something that um, was so far away from the holiness of heaven and the love of God. And, and yet his, his role in it was going to be to die on the cross for us. You know, and um, at one point, you know, Jesus said, uh, the world needs to know that I love the Father and I do exactly what He commanded. That's the end of John 14 there. And he, he, did, he stuck to this plan because He wanted to show love to His Father. At one point, He's praying in the garden before this all happens and He says, Father, if there's another way, if there's another cup, you know, I'd do that, but Your will be done and not mine. And He did it because of His love for His Father. But He also did it because of His love for you and I. You know, He knew if we were to take on the punishment we had earned... Um, that we would basically be spending eternity to violate uh, eternal laws, is to violate really our eternal God, and that requires an eternal punishment, and eternity is a really long time, you know. It's hard to get to the end of eternity, so then you can have a relationship with God after, you know, you deal with unfinished business, because eternity, you'll never reach the end of eternity, right? Um, so, um, Jesus dealt with, with our unfinished business there because He loved us, because He wanted a relationship with us, you know. Um, and, and I just think we, you know, we just got to realize that he, he took the shame that we deserve because He loved us. He took the punishment that we deserve because He loved us. Uh, he wants to have a relationship with us. And um, just, it's, I don't think we can run out of just trying to meditate on His love and trying to connect with that in our heads but in our hearts as well here. Another thing that the cross is to us is an example of those who are to follow Him. He gave us an example to follow. Um, you know, to His disciples He said this, to you and I, I mean, this, this challenge is still out there. But um, 8.34 of Mark you know, at the time when he spoke this, I don't think they realized what he was talking about so much, and maybe they connected more with it after the fact because he hadn't taken the cross up to that point. We, we can look on as Christians and all the information we have and go, oh, I know what he was talking about back then. But uh, this was before it all happened. But he told his disciples, 
Verse 34, Mark chapter 8. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. And Jesus was saying, there's, there's something about denying yourself. Uh, some translations say, deny your selfish pleasures and take up your cross and follow me. And as we see Jesus on the cross here, it's interesting that people are tempting him to do the opposite. They say, um, one round it says here, come down from the cross and save yourself. Another place it says, um, you know, he saved others, he can't save himself. Let this Christ come down now from the cross that we might see and believe. They were tempting him to leave his cross behind. And, you know, I think the world continues to tempt us as Christians. The world says, deny your cross and, and take up yourself and follow whoever. But Jesus' call was real clear. He says, um, deny I don't know what I just said the one before, but deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. It's not deny your cross, you know. Um, I know we've had this cross here. Some of you have seen this guy. Um, this bad boy is a big, solid one, but sometimes we'll take it out downtown, out in the neighborhood, and start walking around with this. And you should see the reaction that we get from people carrying a cross around there. Uh, people, they already, they automatically start mocking and saying, well, eh, Jesus had his own cross, why do you got that? And it's just, they start doing some insulting things. But, you know, Jesus wasn't talking about just taking up a big giant wood cross. You know, the bigger the cross, the better. Um, but, but he was talking about there's a shame, there's something that the world is going to give you when you try to follow him, when you try to live for the name of Jesus honor the name of Jesus and um, I know that's something that, that I can grow in I know that's something that we can grow in it's just it seems like as disciples most of us you know we, we've got our tickets punched to heaven we've got our forgiveness um, but when it comes to being a disciple who denies ourselves takes up our cross I, my observation in my own life and I think probably in, in all of us is that there's there's way too much self and, and way too little cross in our lives and I think God wants to change that I think he wants us to take up some suffering and turn our back on the world, even if people will mock or you know laugh or do whatever at us. But, but to be his disciple is to deny our selfishness and take up our cross to follow him. And I hope that we grow in that. You know, the world is tempting him to come off the cross. The world tells us today, you know, don't waste your time, don't waste your money. There's an easier way than doing what you're doing is, is what they were trying to tell him. But... He was carrying out the mission that his father had given him. And we've got a mission that we need to carry out that requires. If you're not denying yourself, there's no way you're going to be following Christ. If you're not carrying a cross, making a stand, you know, a cross helps you know where you stand and helps the world know where you stand. When you get this cross out there on the 16th Street Mall, um, you know, you kind of know where you stand. You know, there's sometimes we went out, I think there was one time close to... Uh, St. Patrick's Day or something like that. When you get a bunch of drunken people out there and you're carrying a cross, people that are yelling at you and you're standing with the cross, you know where you stand. And I think we probably need to do a few more things so that we know where we stand and they know where we stand with Christ. Um, But he's given us an example to follow here. This last one, we'll just close at this point here. On the cross, our debt was paid in full. On the cross, uh, the ransom, you know, we've been... It says uh, back in Mark 10 there that um, he came not to, to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Because of sin, you know, we, death has claims to us. 
And it kind of has a ransom. It said, hey, look, you want these people back? Here's what you got to pay. And Jesus came and he paid that ransom note for you and for I so that we wouldn't be obligated uh, to death for eternity, you know. And um, sometimes there can be, I, I think there can be some confusion or some wondering on what happens after, um, what happens after Jesus died. You know, really there's two camps that say Jesus died. One says after he died, he went to hell. And in hell, he just experienced the flames and the wrath and everything there. And, and therefore, that's where he really paid for us. Another camp would say, you know, like Jesus said to the thief, he said, this day I will see you in paradise. Some would say he got it done and he went to be with his father after that um, until, until he rose from the dead and came back into his body there. But, you know, I think... You could debate that. We could probably, you know, have a bunch of theological arguments on that. But the one thing that I've noticed more and more is that it seems like what Jesus accomplished on the cross was everything that was needed for you and for I to be paid for. You know, Jesus could have said right here, you know, there's different places. Uh, you know, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 34 goes on to say in verse 38, the temple, I mean, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Most of you probably know the symbolism in that, but there was really uh, really a veil that separated us between you know, people and God, and only the holy, uh, only uh, once a year could a holy priest go back there and kind of have this interaction with God, and, and it was really God's way of saying, you know what, my son has died, he's been punished for you, and now the veil is torn so that we can have relationships. The unfinished business is dealt with, let's get on with a loving relationship. John, uh, John's account uh, in John 19.30 is the one where it says, It is finished. Jesus was on the cross. He, he cries out, God, why have you forsaken me? Um, but then he also, before his last breath, he says, It is finished. And I was just reading one uh, Bible commentator on that that said you could really, in the Greek, you could really literally say to that it is finished phrase, um, it's like saying it's paid in full. It's paid in full. And he breathed his last breath. You know, he didn't have to go to hell and burn for a while so that we didn't have to burn and things like that. He, he took the punishment on the cross. The separation, you know, uh, he says here, um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, there was a lot of things Jesus experienced. He experienced physical pain, emotional pain. Um, he experienced the shame and this guilt and everything. But probably the, the part of that that was the most uh, related to covering our debt was... He experienced a, a spiritual and an eternal suffering when his father, his loving father, who he'd been in eternal relationship from the beginning, never been apart from his father as far as his love and their unity. And at one point, his father turned his back on him and treated him um, as, as sin. And then after that, there would be eternity together forever. But, you know, you start to think about it. And you get into some mathematics and stuff here. But when you compare how much time did Jesus spend apart from God, you know, it's a really big deal how much time. If you understand infinity on one side and infinity on the other, you start to realize it's not the amount of time in the middle that matters. It's that it even happened at all. It's a very profound thing to think about. And, and Jesus, he experienced that so that we would not have to. And... Our debt has been paid in full. And all of this, all of this taking our shame, taking our punishment, um, taking even the, the spiritual and the eternal consequence, He took that all upon Himself and He offers in exchange as a free gift forgiveness and eternal life. And 
and that's um, you know this he offers it all as a gift to us and I think about this close with um, this verse here some of you might know it in Ephesians 2 2, 8 and 9 it's probably one of our memory verses here in the but I'll read it just so I don't butcher it under, butcher it under pressure here but this is um, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith this gracious work that Jesus died on the cross so you and I and Barabbas wouldn't have to get punished you know we don't know what happened to him but I do know you and I are convicted in God's law and we have the potential to be set free by his grace but it's by grace you have been saved through faith when you believe he did that for you and this not from yourselves it is the gift of God not by works so that no one can boast you know God Jesus took all of this on himself um, so that we wouldn't have to be punished and in exchange he says here's a gift to you of forgiveness of eternal relationship with God if you would just believe in me as your Lord and Savior you know and so uh, if you have questions about it if you got, haven't gotten to a place where you've looked to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior from all your sins as the one who did pay for you I'd love to talk with you more I know that people anyone who invited you here would be glad to answer any questions you have next week we're going to look a little more at um, at that good news related to this chapter and how we're to respond to that in chapter 16 here but we'll go ahead and pray here and get on with the rest of our, our weekend well, Lord Jesus, I just want to thank you that, that you did endure that for us, for, for all of us. You said it's for our transgressions. You, you were pierced for our transgressions. You were crushed for our iniquities. The, the punishment that brought us peace was upon you. By your wounds we were healed. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you did it. We thank you that you went through with it. We thank you that your love kept you on the cross when it would have been much easier to flex your, your power and, and just eradicate everyone who was mocking you. We thank you you stayed to the cross because it was the way to pay for us. It was a way to stick with the plan of, of the Father and to show Him love. Lord, I pray that you'd help us be a church full of men and women that aren't just nominal believers, but that are disciples, that in response to your love, we want to give you our lives back. We want to take up a cross for you in this dark world. Help us to do that, Lord. Help us to be men and women who know your love, know how you've rescued us, we know how you long to transform us. Um, God, make us a church that prays about that at noon every day. Um, and we just pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for coming here this morning, you guys. And I hope you have a great rest of your memorial weekend. And we will see you next week for uh, Mark chapter 16. So thanks a lot.